Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. To name a boulevard for Arthur Ashe, on which the Stonewall Jackson statue sits. Because then we're having conversations. Okay, who is Arthur Ashe? And who is Arthur Ashe in the context of Stonewall Jackson? And what would Stonewall Jackson think of Arthur Ashe? And what would Arthur Ashe think of Stonewall Jackson? Here with Michael Paul Williams of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Hours for the hour. Stay with us. Full disclosure, listeners, Sunday, November 10th at Richmond's historic National Theater, Full Disclosure Live presents An Evening with Not a Surf, one of my favorite rock bands on 25 years of glory, of collapse, of rebuilding, of grit, of coming out and hustling their name back into the big time. A live recording, hear the stories, then hear the music. The band's going to perform a full concert. You can get your tickets at facebook.com slash fulldradio. You can go to the Nationals website. You can go to notasurf.com. Definitely do not miss it. November 10th at the National in RVA. Full disclosures, evening with Not a Surf. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Join us. Joining me in studio, veteran Richmond Times-Dispatch columnist Michael Paul Williams. I recently took Michael to my favorite diner amid the inebriation of a delicious breakfast. He agreed to appear on Full Disclosure. So here goes. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Robin. How are you? Well, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you churn out these columns. What runs twice a week? Twice a week. There's no paucity of headlines here in RVA, across the state of Virginia, nationally. I mean... You, 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 you got a kind of a, a, a prod from a headline in Syracuse this week with reparations isn't just about slavery. In Richmond and other cities, it's also about highways. Are you always on the lookout for, you have to be, kind of definitionally? Yeah. Um, I find my inspiration wherever I can manage to, to dig it up. And I am a voracious reader of the Washington Post and the New York Times, in addition to my own newspaper. And these are interesting times, and I've found that uh, Richmond is is kind of a microcosm of everywhere. Uh, I like to say that you can't understand America if you don't understand Richmond and Virginia, and so many of these national stories have a, a, a Richmond application. Uh, John Meeser, of course, reads that story, um, the urban planner, um, and, and, and immediately thinks, wow, this applies to Richmond more than any place he can think of. Wow. So I've seen before, it's been written, we talk about Michael Paul Williams, MPW for short, has told us about the importance of differentiating between Richmond and RVA. RVA is, of course, the the open source marketing coup that's 10, 15 years old. You see younger people moving here. They're very partial to the dining community, beers, whitewater rafting and whatnot. We call it RVA, RIVA for short. Um, we were cited, I think, at the New York Times as being one of uh, one of the most friendly places for the LGBT community. You're much more likely to see a gay pride flag here than a stars and bars. But then there's Richmond, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, where people ask you where you went to high school, where if you and I went, you know, nearby to the the uh, Commonwealth Club, you would get tastes and vestiges of this being the former capital of the Confederacy. Unpack some of that for me. Yeah, I think. Um, RVA is what we aspire to be, and Richmond in many ways is what we still are. Uh, When I first saw that RVA sticker uh, on the bumper of a car in short pump, maybe 10 10 years ago it had to be at least, uh, I almost drove off the road because there had never been any sort of pride associated with being from Richmond, at least locally. People were for so long just really, really down on Richmond. So RVA represented this kind of this burgeoning spirit that Richmond was on the move. 
and this long overdue acknowledgement that we have a lot of things going for us. We have a wonderful river. Um, we have this food scene that's really picked up, wonderful arts community um, that's generated so much of the positive energy, um, whether it's the, the galleries or the museums, um, the murals. Uh, RVA is our hip cousin. Uh, Richmond is kind of that stodgy uncle that is very much a part of who we are. Uh, Richmond is also that long-term failure to address some systemic problems that have plagued this city pretty much since its founding. As evidenced by the state of our schools, our public schools in Richmond Public District, Richmond Public Schools and Monument Avenue, which still has, uh, you know, pays homage to the Confederate generals. And we're talking about it being 2019. And these things were erected uh, in the early 20th century in the era of Jim Crow and the Civil War nominally ended in 1865. Hmm. And and what what you're saying there, um, the schools and the monuments, uh, I would say that's almost like a shorthand for poverty and race. Poverty and race are Richmond's, and and, and, and and more so than well, inequity. They're always been, they've always been these, these these gaping chasms between the haves and have-nots in Richmond, um, manifesting itself in, in class and race, and 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 they continue to to plague us uh, with our poverty rate with with. With our huge concentration of public housing, our, our deteriorating public housing, um, and a school district that that serves a largely impoverished enrollment, uh, which of course makes everything more difficult in, in the way of education, and and the race plays in with the poverty and also with the monuments and and our our, our celebration of things that really uh, aren't worthy of celebration. Uh, our inability to confront in an honest way uh, the racism that has defined Richmond historically. So what I, what I noticed in my seven years since moving here is that at least it's a, it's a polite sweeping under the rug. I mean, there are the, the, the neo-Confederates that are at the corner of the boulevard and, you know, Grove Ave or wherever it is a couple of times a week, you know, waving the stars of bars. You don't see them very frequently, the Confederate flag, nearly as much as used to in the past. Uh, but you see things chalked up to tradition. Or if I bring up uh, with a family I met from Monument Avenue, I said, why are you so opposed to these monuments coming down? Or even low-hanging fruit like Jeff Davis, right? Jefferson Davis, not a war hero, the president of the Confederacy. And the, the immediate retort was, why doesn't the African-American community focus on fixing its schools? And I didn't understand that response. I didn't understand why they were antipodal, why it was one or another. Well, a defining characteristic of, of both RVA and Richmond, sadly, is whataboutism. We should be able to multitask. We should be able to deal with our racism problem and our education problem, which, by the way, are intertwined. Uh, I, nothing infuriates me more than the, the, than the whataboutism. It's just a way to change the subject when it comes to the monuments. Let's be honest about it. Uh, and, and those monuments embody... Those monuments built more than a century ago embody the problems that remain with us today, uh, the inequities that remain. They, they symbolize them. Uh, it, it, that we tolerate them symbolizes our inability to confront the racism and inequality 
that is Richmond history. It's just a constant reminder on a gorgeous tree-lined thoroughfare, our broadest, you know, Monument Avenue. You have, <laughs> unfortunately, the one statue. And, and did you grow up in, in Bird Park? Yes. The yes, one statue to poor Arthur Ashe looks like the, you know, he's holding up the racket and the kids are holding up the books. And, and that itself, I can't believe, was controversial back in the day amid well, a bunch of Confederate generals. But we're still kind of litigating this in 2019. Yeah, I'm not sure in my childhood there were, there were any statues of, of African-Americans in Richmond. The Bojangles statue in Jackson War, Bill Bojangles Robinson, the, sure. the, um, the famous entertainer. Uh, was the first one that I can recall going up, and I believe that went up um, in the 1980s, I think, if memory serves. Mm. Yeah, Arthur Ashe. I mean, probably, I don't even know why I'm qualifying it, Richmond's most famous native son, uh, uh, without equivocation, one of the finest people to come out of the state, out of this country, uh, somehow became controversial, erecting a monument to him. At a time when we had monuments to people who, who fought to maintain slavery, and and fought against the Union, uh, it 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 doesn't pass any sort of test of logic. Yeah, the three of the things that I've noticed, I think, since moving here, the most I think fiercely overtly segregated parts of Richmond I find are school, pool, and church. Right. Um, yeah. Sunday mornings. Everybody said that that's the most segregated hour or two hours in the country, but people are very particular about their schools and the private schools. The number of people that are willing to send their kids, say, to a very elite private schools who live in the city or are willing to pay $25,000, $26,000 a year, which I said to people when I first got here, like, K through 12, I don't think I paid $25,000 a year for college. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, even if you in, uh, adjust this for inflation, but people, um, it wasn't a whataboutism. It was kind of almost an axiomatic, but you don't expect us to send our kids to the, you know, public schools, middle schools or anything. It's one thing to go to Mary Munford. It's another thing. So just this, and it's not, it, it wouldn't fall under the traditional massive resistance thing. It's just kind of understood that you don't send your kids to public school here. Well, I, I went, I attended parochial schools um, through eighth grade. And it was an interesting experience. And, 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 and there are things that I took away from that that I would call positive. But Attending public high, a public high school, Henrico County Public High School, was also educational. I think, I think who we attend school with is as much a part of our education as our curriculum. And having attended uh, marginally integrated schools, where of course I was uh, a small racial minority. For virtually my entire K through 12 experience, um, was an education on how the larger world functioned. Uh, the larger world was no shock. Um, I made the decision to go to an African American, historically black college because I felt like I needed that experience mm -hmm. coming out of that K through 12 experience. So it's it's all part uh, going to school with people of different classes, uh, incomes. Uh, different nationalities. It's, it's, it's all part of the learning experience. And, and if we don't have that, I think we, we come out short. May I ask you what it was after going to the HBCU to uh, Northwestern for your journalism degree? Um, what kind of leap of faith it took or you felt you had the head of steam and the, the confidence to just you know, show up? For, you, you were a Virginian, but you show up at the tundra of Evanston? Yeah, it, um, 
it was intimidating for maybe a minute. Um, now, graduate school is a different kind of animal. Sure. Um, you're there for to focus on a specific uh, avenue of study. Uh, I remember sitting in that lab, pounding out news stories with a bunch of um, uh, students who attended um, schools far larger than Virginia Union University, um, Ivy League schools, mm. uh, large public universities, and wondering for a second if I belonged and um, pretty quickly finding out that I more than belonged. Um, I remember um, being pulled aside very early on by um, one of the instructors in the program and who said, you know, he admired my work and that I was doing a good job and that mm. in many ways he felt like I was um, ahead of uh, my classmates from some of these prestigious institutions. So I felt like then and there, well, Virginia Union has prepared me to 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 be in this place. So that was that was reassuring. And I thought of this actually. You've 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 talked and commented about your experience at a historically black uh, college. Uh, Jamel Hill had a much talked about uh, story in the October issue of The Atlantic. Um, it's time for black athletes to leave white colleges. They attract money and attention to the predominantly white universities that showcase them while HBCUs struggle. What would happen if they collectively decided to go to black schools? And well, it's a fascinating conversation because you're talking, you know, in the context of football right now, the NCAA had $1.1 billion in revenue for its 2017 fiscal year. You have uh, increasingly, um, it's been written about the African-Americanization of football as a ticket out while we're talking about concussion protocols and and, uh, most most people dropping out of Pop Warner football and these other things, just opting out of it outside of people who seemingly don't have a ticket out. What if, you wonder, what if there would be a unionization? What if suddenly instead of going to Alabama, instead of going to Clemson, instead of going to Georgia, uh, collectively, you're allowed to collude as a high schooler, call a bunch of other star recruits and make an HBCU. Well, um, it's, um, a, it's a fantastic concept to ponder. <laughs> yeah, Robin, I'm, I'm old enough to remember um, as a child, when segregation, and you know, I've always been a big football fan, college and pro, yeah. and, and I remember when segregation was still very much the norm uh, on the college level um, in the 1960s. I remember some of the early pioneers who, who, who shattered some of that. Uh, I remember when UVA really didn't have any, any African Americans on the football roster. Um, my brother was recruited um, at University of Richmond and the College of William & Mary at a time when he would have been among the first. Mm. Um, this was in the late 60s. Um, so I can remember that. Uh, it It's, it's re- I mean, look, Jerry Rice. Sure. The greatest wide receiver, arguably the greatest football player in, in, in NFL history is a product of an HBCU. Uh, and he came out I mean, this is not that long ago that he was uh, well past the point when black athletes were going to major colleges. It It's rife with hypocrisy hmm. when you just to witness. I mean, just these universities uh, pack these teams with African-American athletes, football, basketball, uh, and, and and they are overly represented in athletics in a way that they are nowhere near represented as a, a larger percentage sure. of the student body. Um, at the same time, we continue to have this national debate 
about affirmative action uh, and these movements to deny African-American students um, entry into some of these colleges. Um, and but, you know, it, transactionally, it's just such massive business. If you look at Bama right now under Nick Saban, a state with a very regrettable civil rights history recently, if you look at Ole Miss and the stars and bars were flying yeah, in. I, I, I don't, the, I don't uh, Mississippi. Um, I mean, yeah. We yeah can, I, we I, can, I, I, I just do not understand how a black athlete could go to the University of Mississippi. Now, well, I, know, I understand with the Emmett that, Till with the Emmett Till news yeah, this yeah, week. Yeah. I mean, the juxtaposition to kind of yeah, they're literally in. shooting bullets into Emmett Till memorials, and and these are frat boys from the University of Mississippi. And and if that's still the environment, if if, if that's if 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 the university is still producing students like that and admitting students like that, I would want no part of it as an African American athlete or student. But at the same week, almost within 24 hours of the president of the United States calling his situation with Congress a a lynching. I mean, it's a, I thought the juxtaposition of that was, the the Emmett Till headline alone to me was shocking enough, as if Emmett Till, uh, a 14-year-old boy from Chicago who was lynched brutally for purportedly whispering at a, you know, white shopkeeper's wife in, in Mississippi, maybe the most infamous lynching in U.S. history. And the fact that the memorial, uh, the, the the part of the water where he was abandoned and his body in an open casket afterwards, his mother wanted the world to see what happened to him. The fact that that was, you know, people have been shooting at that. And we're talking about a crime that happened in 1955. We're talking about 2019. Uh, was hugely sobering, I think, for me this week to see that. Why, why are people doing that? Um, Emmett Till was a victim. Why are people treating him like a perpetrator? What is that? An America needs to ask itself. Why are people defacing memorials to Emmett Till? What is it about the American psyche that can't handle a memorial to an African-American martyr, a teenager who was viciously murdered? We need to have that discussion. But the obverse of that is— it's not natural. Well, the obverse is that— It's perverse. It is perverse. But I don't know what kind of environment— suborns that, where people can understand that it's open season. It's a running joke or it's a trope that you can shoot at this thing. Um, It's America. America needs to be honest about the hate. The level of hatred that is foundational to this nation. We, we We don't do a good job at confronting our hate. We try to pretend it's not us, this is not who we are. We, we do that every day. How many, how many things like this have to happen before we acknowledge this is a part of us? This is part of who we are. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Paul Williams, a veteran columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. I wish I could have him on for hours. We could be all over the headlines. I do want to drill down into one of the things that you wrote um, recently. Uh, The Virginia NAACP is fighting a Dominion Energy pipeline. It's also pocketing Dominion Energy money. And the way my mind works is I think back to, um, I know this is a little scattershot, but I was once invited to the Commonwealth Club here for lunch. I didn't know what I was getting into. I know to wear a blazer. I went downstairs. um, And these these are captains of business. Many of them work you know, in energy, some in tobacco, most in finance. Uh, they pay quite a big membership fee and initiation fee. And I was struck. And this might sound naive to you, but the staff um, does not make eye contact with the patrons at lunch, the all-male patrons downstairs. And 
I can't help but think that that was a vestige of the Richmond that you talk about. And yet the NAACP, and I don't even know I'm in, if I'm invoking the right thing in this conversation, the NAACP, when it gets a chance to take, I think in this case was a $50,000 check, um, you know, it issued fossil-fueled foolery as a primer on the fuel industry's top 10 manipulations. But when it was convenient to take the money, it took the money. I don't know how you do that. We are as drilled into us as journalists. It should be drilled into elected officials, and it should be drilled into people who advocate or organizations who advocate that the appearance of conflict can be every bit as damaging as real conflict. And I simply do not understand how this does not have the appearance of conflict. Someone gives you $50,000, are you going to advocate against them as strongly as you might if they hadn't given you that $50,000? You leave yourself open to criticism, and yes, they did, and, and, and I'm not making this stuff out of, up out of whole cloth. That column was born out of very real dissent within the organization about what it was doing. Mm. Uh, these were concerns um, aired by NAACP members. Uh, if something like this causes division within your organization, um, do you need to rethink it? What about tobacco? You see that in this case, I think it's an interesting through line that the artist Kahinda Wiley's uh, monumental public sculpture, the VMFA, is bringing this to Arthur Ashe Boulevard, just steps from, what is it, Stonewall Jackson's statue. Mm-hmm. The VMFA takes a lot of money. Its chief mm-hmm. benefactor is Altria. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could also tie tobacco to the history of, of Richmond. It's inextricably linked to the economy, to slavery, to everything else going mm-hmm. on here. There seem to be some openings or some apertures where there's commonality, or am I supposed to just read this as a transactional thing? What I'm trying to ask is, are both of these examples of kind of um, you know, strategic um, philanthropy? Tactical Um, philanthropy. Yeah, yeah. And and I've been reading stories about how organizations um, or or corporations are doing this sort of thing to enhance their standing um, and their perceptions by the wider community. They have money to burn, let's face it. But I'm not sure that the VMFA situation is analogous to the NAACP situation in that a museum is a museum. Mm. Not exactly the same as an organization that's in the political realm fighting for the little guy, fighting for people who are oppressed. I'm just saying it doesn't tend to get as political mm. um, when uh, in, in the realm of of art donation and, and, and benefactors to art institutions as it does in the fight for racial and social ju- and environmental justice. Mm. One might argue the stakes are higher. but but yes, it, it, it gets tricky. I'll just say that. Yeah, the, the money, money is ubiquitous yeah. in this town. I think it was it was Jeff Shapiro, your colleague, who once wrote that, that the political power is centered here in African-American hands. The mayor is African-American. The economic power is still overwhelmingly white mm-hmm. and legacy. And, and it's and, been ever thus. And it's been ever thus. And very rarely the twain shall meet. And things that are metaphors for this disconnect that the school district. Another one right now we're talking about, which is very um, ripe for you, is this project in Navy Hill, mm-hmm. if you can unpack that for us. I was married at the Marriott in whatever, Navy Hill back in 2008. I didn't know it was ever called that. I know there was a big rusted coliseum behind it that was like this temple from the 1980s. It's mm-hmm. been sitting there dormant, I think, since, uh, was it Sesame Street on Ice since last November? And now it's it's uh, part of this gigantic imbroglio in this town where you have people saying 
that you have like a single bid coming in from the CEO of Dominion is backing a group that's going to redevelop the entire area. There are all these tax credits involved. I have a hard time getting my head around this. Where do I start? Well, I think I think I mean even the commission that is looking into this, and and these these are people much smarter than I am looking at this, and and they're trying to unpack it and they're trying to make sense of it. it it's complicated. It's extremely complicated. Well, let me take um, the counterfactual. What happens if nothing's built there? What happens if they just tear apart this tin can, which is, it is derelict. It is old. It is an eyesore. Mm -hmm. But you don't develop any of the area around it. I mean, after all, you have seen unbelievable gentrification in Jackson Ward, in Carver, all up and down Broad Street. You see the pawn shops are getting taken over by cafes, by ice cream places. I don't know if it's quality. I mean, just, just look at, I mean, I hate to sound like a free market, <laughs> but the free market it, along with government intervention in the form of um, historic tax credits, has helped remake Richmond. We didn't have this sort of project, um, this sort of public-private massive partnership involving a huge TIF in Scott's Edition. And look at what's happening in Scott's Edition. Um, we didn't have this in Manchester, and look at what's happening in Manchester. Um, uh, look at all the um, gentrification taking place in Church Hill. Lots of energy going on in Barton Heights, Brooklyn Park Boulevard. Economic forces are at work that are doing things that would happen naturally. And the track record of government as developer, uh, now I know that um, we have a, a private corporation developed, but in, this is another one of those big ticket kinds of projects. This never really worked in Richmond. And, and I'll just say up front, I'm just fundamentally opposed to the entire concept of how they are proposing to build a new coliseum. Now, there are many people who will tell you that we don't need a coliseum. Um, and it's been my experience that that's often a generational discussion. Mm. Um, I grew up, Richmond Coliseum opened when I was, a, I think, a teenager, young teenager. Uh, so I can recall what it was like walking to a spanking new coliseum to see the Jackson 5, uh, to see Parliament Funkadelic and, <laughs> and Earth, Wind, and Fire, sure. and 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 all the great '70s bands, and and to um, see the Virginia Squires, I think I was there when yeah. Doc, maybe one of Doctor J, Julius Irving's first games. That was a, a professional basketball we had a team. Professional basketball People team. People forget traveled that. the state. Virginia Squires yeah. played most of their games down in Tidewater, down in That's Norfolk, and Hampton, yeah. but they they would occasionally come to Richmond, and that was great. Now, times are different. Um, the music industry has changed. Um, maybe it's not viable anymore. I don't. We have a generation. We have millennials who have no experience with a viable arena. Mm. Um, I thought it was great when we had the Colonial Athletic Association packing in twelve thousand, and we were watching VCU and, and all the other teams. George Mason play. Uh, that's an argument that can be had about the need for a coliseum, but what's a non-starter for me is Richmond taxpayers alone being on the hook for that coliseum. I have argued time and again that this is a regional facility that needs to be financed and subsidized by the regional partners. Richmond, Henrico, Hanover, Chesterfield. Uh, it, it makes no sense for me to Richmond of all the, of all localities going it alone. To, to, to build a new Coliseum. Um, I, I view the Coliseum as an adjunct to the convention center, which logically 
incorrectly was viewed as a regional facility. Hmm. So one could make the argument that we need a decent arena to serve as an adjunct to the convention center. Um, there could also be a viable argument that we don't need a coliseum, but the way they're going about it is just a non-starter for me. Um, it, 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 you're, you're essentially giving up 30 years worth of, of new tax revenue in this special tax zone um, that we could be using in the general fund for schools, public works, and various other, other, other endeavors. So and, how else is it something that's otherwise just a, a pure, cold-eyed, mercenary real estate calculation? You could say nominally private sector driven, but there are always going to be people looking for tax credits and bonuses. But it is they're trying to argue that the risk is ultimately borne by the private sector, which is questionable. But why is it so tied up in issues of race and class? I mean, you did mention in your column that the, the Navy Hill neighborhood was eviscerated by 64 and 95. And this is another example of you know, eminent domain run amok kind of on the backs of, of poor people of yeah, color. Just attaching, attaching the, just the nomenclature is offensive to attaching the Navy, the Navy Hill name to this project, which has nothing to do with the historic community that was there, which let's not forget was eviscerated uh, in the name of progress. Uh, in schemes very much similar to this, is offensive to me. It, it, it's it's no, don't attach. This is not about Navy Hill. I don't see how it's going to benefit the folks who ended up being displaced uh, in my lifetime through progress in Navy Hill. Um, I, I just don't see it, and I don't, I don't see where where did this where is the impetus? Where was who? Where was the huge outcry to remake? This part of downtown, surrounded by a biotechnology park, by city government infrastructure, a federal building, um, Virginia Commonwealth University's medical campus. Where, where was this huge— Well, the foot in the door was the clearly derelict— um, yeah, but, stadium. But no, and so opportunistically, is, if you and but you're saying it's much easier. Like that, it should that be a is partnership. Not the of, that area is not the future of Richmond. It's mm. not. It, it, we're making another generational mistake. When the Sixth Street Marketplace was built, can you tell us more about that? It was before my time here. The Sixth Street Marketplace. Um, marketplace opened in 1985, I believe. Uh huh. Um, before it was built, there was um a bit of a debate largely behind the scenes about where should we build this, this festival marketplace. Um, think what we have in Harbor Place in Baltimore. Sure. Um, Waterside in Norfolk, which hasn't done well at yeah. all. Um, They've all failed. I yeah. mean, Bayside in Miami, well, I mean, Masolas Riverfront. Yeah, I mean, but they, I mean, you need a, a much more of a critical mass mm -hmm. of, of a population and tourists, um, like at Harbor Place or Funeral Hall in Boston, um, to make these things sustainable. Um, we just didn't have that here. Um, the two department stores, Tallhamas and Miller Roads, went belly up. But even before all that, there was a debate about whether it should be on the river. Because ba even back then, decades ago, people s could s see that Richmond's future was on the riverfront. And the river was nowhere near as nice as it is now, trust me. It didn't have a flood wall. There was no real infrastructure like the Canal Walk. Didn't have a Virginia Capitol Trail. Sure. 
didn't have the, the Pot- Tyler Potterfield Bridge, none of that. Uh, Clean Water Act was a little over a decade old, so the, the river was still kind of an open sewer. Um, but people could see that Richmond's future was on the river. And, and the city planners and the city planning document have said that. Um, they've made downtown, Man- they've made Manchester, part of, south of the river, part of downtown out of the sense that the James River is our center. Mm. We should be doing everything we can to develop that, and, and we have a wonderful riverfront plan. But here we are talking about pouring $1.5 billion into an area north of, down, of, of Broad Street in north downtown I don't think is really viewed as the future of Richmond. May I ask you, though, um, we've done events at the Hippodrome. We've talked about the storied history of uh, the Deuce and Second and, you know, the the Jazz Age and whatnot. The gentrification that you're seeing there now, is that quality gentrification for Jackson Heights? I'm sorry, for Jackson Ward. Well, The New Yorker in me is still talking. (laughs) Well, I mean, Jackson Ward and Navy Hill— Adjacent to each other, and 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 really, in 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 some histories, basically part viewed as part of the same community. Um, that ship sailed when they built Interstate ninety five. They decimated both of those communities. You can't recreate that when you run an interstate highway through the heart of both of those communities. So you're never going to recreate that. Um, and this incremental stuff of a cafe, a juice bar, a poke bowl place, a place where people feel comfortable moseying off, maybe a vinyl store or anything, is that doing anything to resuscitate what this place used to be maybe in the 1940s? You're saying it's, it's, it has sailed because of the interstates. There's no way to— hey, I But I want to know what quality development is then. So I mean, this, I love me some soul taka. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and um, the Korean restaurant on the corner, what is it? Oh, Yeah. I mean that's that's good stuff, and, and I mean I I'm happy to see good food pop up. I'm happy to see businesses pop up. Um, it's not what it was. It's not it's not um, an Afrocentric community anymore. I'm mm-hmm. not sure you can re- recreate that in the 21st century. Um, it, it's it's um, we have a lot of students who are living in Jackson Ward now, VCU, um, the College of Date Richmond. It's all good. It's it's better than vacant buildings and 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 and, and crime and decay. I'll, I'll take it, but it's not going to be what it was. We're not going to recreate the Harlem of the South. Now there are vestiges of that, of that history that we should do all we can to preserve. Um, we should always celebrate that history. Um, we've got the Hippodrome. We've got the Taylor House. We've got the Maggie Walker House. We've still got Second Street. Um, and I think that's good. Richmond needs to celebrate what makes Richmond Richmond, what makes it unique. And I think we have this habit. The James River is part of what makes Richmond unique. Mm. It's a singular American river. Um, you will not find whitewater rafting of that caliber in running through the downtown of a major of, of 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 any city of any city. Right. Um, I, we had some. We had the um, James River Rider. You, you were part of this. Yeah. James River Writers Conference. Um, we um, took a couple of um, the conventioneers down to the river for the folk festival. Um, took them out on the teapot bridge. They were just 
they were just amazed at all Richmond has to offer. Right. They were very, very impressed with our city. Um, and there's that fundamental tension again when I bring out-of-towners here. It's RVA versus Richmond. Mm-hmm. I can give you the Chamber of Commerce tour. I can show you all the great breweries. I could take you in the Scots edition, and you can have the finest brisket this side of Austin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're not getting at the underlying issues. We're not getting down to brass tacks. Mm-hmm. And I, I got to tell you, I feel guilty about that. And I, as a newcomer, I'm not saying I'm a carpetbagger. I married a Richmonder. I came mm-hmm. here. Um, you know, the, as I've said before, the big uh, revelation to me was uh, our child's preschool teacher who took him in. She brought for a show-and-tell class a record of the ownership of her great-great-great-grandparents. And I'm looking around the class as my child is running around he is the son of an Iranian Jewish immigrant. And I look around the class, it's 80% uh, white, uh, not Jewish. Ostensibly, many have descended from slave owners. And she has given so much of herself to treat these children like her own nieces and nephews. And yet, right when you leave that, that preschool, you're on Monument Avenue, and you are just uh, blocks away from Stonewall Jackson. And Robert E. Lee, who we find out you know, in another essay in The Atlantic, was not the, the kindly General Lee. He actually went out of his way to be uh, really brutal to his uh, slaves and other slaves. And um, that just left me, uh, left me really troubled that a person who was like family to us has to go out and be exposed to that, has to see a reminder of the kind of the jingoism that's 100 years old. Yeah, and that's and and that's not all. We we to be fair, that's not all on the city of Richmond. Um, there are forces in the city of Richmond um, who would change this, who would add more context. Um, the Monument Avenue Commission actually recommended the removal of the Jefferson Davis Monument, which they found to be the most egregious, and I'd have to agree. Um, you can penalize things forever, yeah. though. Actually, removing that thing, you saw what happened in Charlottesville. Well, but but you saw the people that came to Charlottesville. Yeah, but but. The, the problem, the main problem here is the General Assembly of the state of Virginia. The Virginia General Assembly has erected a stone wall uh, in the form of legislation to pro- protect these monuments, and not only to protect them from removal or relocation, but to protect them from any context that would be contrary to the lost cause narrative. Hmm. And that's just wrong. But they knew this day would come. When people begin to have honest, forthright conversations about whether these monuments are appropriate in a public space. That's why they are protecting them. And that's racist. I'm sorry. That's just racist. I'm not sorry. That's straight up racist. That these barriers, these legislative barriers have been enacted to protect symbols of racism and white supremacy. Now, given the hand we've been dealt as a city— um, the best thing we can do, um, barring some sort of change in legislation and political um, uh, the political composition, composition down there, is to bring in countervailing monumental messages such as the Wiley statue, mm. um, which will sit two or three blocks away from the Stonewall Jackson statue and, and, and tell a very different message about who we are. Um, to name a boulevard for Arthur Ashe on which the Stonewall Jackson statue sits. Because then we're having conversations. Okay, who is Arthur Ashe? And who is Arthur Ashe in the context of Stonewall Jackson? And what would Stonewall Jackson think of Arthur Ashe? And what would Arthur Ashe think of Stonewall Jackson? I always, well, I've pondered, I've pondered yeah. this very same question if we had a conversation. And, and the brother on the horse. Yeah. yeah. And the brother on the horse with the dreadlocks and the hoodie and the ripped jeans. What, what, what would he think of all this? What does he think of all this? This powerful-looking black man on this horse. 
And what does that say about, what does it say? We can, the more of, the, of those statues and the more of that symbolism we can get in the public landscape, the more we can do, and I'm sick and tired of waiting, in Shaco Bottom to tell the other side, the horrible side of what happened here, you know, not the glory that's represented on Monument Avenue um, among uh, the losers, not the victors, but the people who were oppressed, who were subjugated, who were bought and sold. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Michael Paul Williams of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Uh, you've been there now for how many years? I've been at the Times-Dispatch 37 years, 27 as a columnist. And you grew up in central Virginia? I grew up in Richmond. Um, born in the Bird Park neighborhood. Well, that's where I spent my um, earliest years, um, half a block from Boat Lake, if you know that, or mm-hmm. Fountain Lake. I've heard it called um, both things. Um, moved out right around the time they were starting construction on the, the downtown expressway. We moved out to Glen Allen uh, and grew up in Henrico after that. And and. Moved back to Richmond as soon as I got a chance. Mm. Uh, so I've, I've hopscotched around. Now, you did move back to Richmond. You did want to come back here. Yes. Yeah, Richmond's, I mean, uh, like Richmond has wonderful, walkable neighborhoods. Um, for a young man, which I was at the time, it was <laughs> great to be able to walk to the Cary Street Cafe or walk to the Bamboo Cafe or walk to Joe's Inn. Uh it's um, got very distinctive neighborhoods. I mean, and again, RVA. I mean, the blessing. Um, it's got deplorable neighborhoods. Mm. Uh, it's got neighborhoods. It's got communities where people do not have decent housing and decent heat and decent air conditioning. Um, everyone talks about public housing, and the re- the knee jerk reaction is take it down. We need to tear this down. It's not fit for human habitation. It breeds, you know, whatever. I mean, people just have all sorts of thoughts. They feel all kinds of ways about public housing, but no one answers the essential question. Where do the people live after you've done whatever you do? Hmm. I want to ask you about the General Assembly. You flicked at it just a few minutes ago, and the election is not uh, far away. November's right around the corner. Are you fascinated that this year starts with the blackface controversy with Governor Northam, with Justin Fairfax's accusations of rape, uh, with the attorney general himself kind of voluntarily being ensnared into this? Well, who, and, who knew blackface was so pervasive? I mean, Canada. Yeah, Canada. You did not expect <laughs> all these things. But that the party did not eject any of them. And in fact, um, you have, a, 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 you know, it's a, one of the bizarre things is you see Republican attack ads now linking the likes of like Gazla Hashmi to blackface because she took money from Ralph Northam. One, I'm amazed that this kind of ghost of Ralph Northam or lame duck Ralph Northam exists in his cash pot. How does that even work structurally? How, how do people look the other way? I understand that it's a very critical election. They want to flip the assembly. There are state delegates uh, who are being challenged for the first time in years in dark red districts. Robin. I know money talks. Robin. I know. Donald Trump is president. Let's not talk about people looking the other way about and, and blackface is deplorable. And it really angers me uh, that someone could 
think it was okay to do that in the 1980s even because in the 1980s, anyone should have known that was sure. wrong. It was racist as all get out. It was crazy. I, I scratched my head that I scratched my head at it because it okay, this is who knew that I feel naive. So who, knew the, who knew the blackface was so popular? So I guess so, are things now now graded on the curve of Donald Trump because Donald Trump is president. They, they, the party they, they, here they doesn't have want to, to eat be. They, they have to be because politics does not function in a vacuum. Um, it, 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 and, and I think even it's, it's horrible that we have to make those sorts of accommodations uh, within, our, within our brain and within our heart. Well, it's a real politic but, calculation at this point. It's a, you know, the, you, you see you see the link to the conversation of Al Franken, how Al Franken was sacrificed on the altar of yeah, Me Too. Yeah, yeah. That, that, and, but what and, did that and, do and, for— And, 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 and uh, there was one story in particular. I'm trying, trying to recall where I read it. Um, it was just kind of a takedown of that whole situation. It, mm. it, it, the, whole, the whole situation, in hindsight, had a stench to it that made it <laughs> far from the organic thing that it was presented as at the time. That the the complainant in that situation, sure, was aligned with some forces that were very political, right? And and it and it wasn't it 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 looked it wasn't an accident. Adjacent but, but, to that, but that Al, but that the fact that Al Franken becomes the guy that that ends up being sacrificed of all people, and you can't. It it's like we're in a boxing match, <laughs> <laughs> and and you're allowed to load up your gloves. <laughs> And I and you I, have to have a hand tied behind your back. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, politics can't function in that way. But as deplorable as blackface is, as offensive as blackface is, as angry as blackface makes me, I'm not going to sit here and 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 say that on on the larger scale of things, what people did in the 1980s, the racist things people did in the 1980s, compare with the existential threat to our democracy. That exists today in the in 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 the form of the white what's happening in the White House. That's just it's not even close. So extrapolate if, this if, out if to people, the electorate. I'm yeah. curious. I'm curious. One, I've asked the question adjacent to this: Who is the leader of the Democratic Party right now? We had an event at the Historical Society exactly a year ago called Ace the Midterms, and we asked the chief congressional correspondent of CBS this: We're this far into a Trump presidency, and the Democratic Party seems leaderless, and it seems to still be the case. Nobody has coalesced around a candidate. You see splintered polling even among African-American voters. People have suggested that the polling is flawed. If you talk to older people with landlines, they seem to be okay with Joe Biden. Younger people don't have a taste for him. Where is this all headed? Good question. Um, The Democratic Party bench seems deep but very shallow. Um, They just don't you know, you see the stories, you see the headlines. They they don't have someone that they think can win. I saw that. I think I saw that headline in the Washington Post that there there were doubts about whether they could win. Think about that in 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 the current environment uh, with the president, where polls show that the majority, slender majority, but a majority of folks think are in favor of impeachment. And the Democrats don't think they can win. Uh, it, it, <laughs> what is it, it? Do you think about the ele- do you um, think about the electoral they, college as much as I do? I mean, they say a person bought things. Donald Trump was a master at using leverage and being an arbitrageur of bankruptcy law and gaming the system back in his day. But he ran the table 
on the Electoral College. And you've seen the ratios of like this corridor of voters that came out for him that effectively you had something like a tyranny of the minority. How did, but how does he lose? I mean, how does how did the Democrats, how does Hillary Clinton lose Pennsylvania and Michigan? I mean, it just, I don't see how that happens. I don't know if we can blame the Electoral College for that. Mm. That those those are not states a viable Democratic candidate should, should lose and certainly should not lose to Donald Trump. Do you see it happening again? Do you know who the candidate will be? Do you have a? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. And and um, that's not good. I mean, the torchbearer needs that the African American vote, even though that's not monolithic. I don't know if the Alabama special Senate election demonstrated that a while ago, but. No one has been found to be anywhere near a coalition builder that Obama and, you know, maybe Clinton in his heyday were. That's a problem. But none of them are the politician that Obama was. Hmm. Uh, You asked who the leader of the Democratic Party is, the natural leader would be Barack Obama. But he's happily retired. Yeah. Michael Paul Williams, in the 10 minutes or so we have left, we call this part of the show Free Skate. You know, you're a young man, but back in the, my youth, you know. You I'm a Sunshine. young man? <laughs> yeah. You do look a lot younger. You go to Sunshine Skateway in North Miami and they play some air supply and they go, all right, couples, free skate, free skate. You get to take the mic. You get to turn it around. You get to tell me what I should be asking you, what should be front and center, what is getting short shrifted in the press. Go. Wow. I could play some air supply if you'd like. Wow. What should I... I'm feeling I it um, too. Are you feeling it no, too? Is the feeling oh so right? No, I mean, Go ahead. We, I don't think I don't think I don't think we can talk enough. And anyone can can debate, ask questions, force the issue enough about A, the current political situation and the very real precarious state of our democracy at this point. It's, I, I live through Watergate. Watergate's not even close to what I feel like we're experiencing right now. Um, climate change. Uh, when I say this sometimes, people's eyes roll. I mean, the, 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 there's, we are in existential danger. And people are still trying to get paid, still trying to make that money. And, and I don't understand that. I don't I, I, yeah, after all, they have grandkids too. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, don't you have children, grandkids? What is there? Some spaceship up there that Can you just go to higher land, beam everyone up, sure, and, and all the all the wealthiest folks up, and just leave us here to. And we can never talk enough about social justice issues such as um, racism, sexism. Um, the LGBTQ um, movement, the um, environmental racism, we need to talk about, we like to celebrate, we like to have these contrived celebrations, Um, the bicentennial of the nation. 400 years of this, you know, of, of, well, what did of, you of make representative of, government and the enslaved 
the, what the first Africans arriving The muted here. 1619 or the New York Times seemed to reach you know the mantle for that. Is that something that you frustratingly you wish the Richmond Times Dispatch had done? Well, we, we, who has the resources to do that except a place like the New York Times? Mm. But that's that's a wonderful thing. But well, yeah, that that was that's the glorious example of what we should be doing more often. We should there should be much more, and you saw the pushback to that. There should be much more discussion about what this nation is, who we are, what we stand for. You know, it, we're, we're hearing debates about that in our foreign policy. What, what just happened in, 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 in Syria? What are we, who are we? Um, I think this should be a time of great questioning in America. Do we believe the hype? Do we believe those glorious words? Those words are glorious in our founding documents. Um, or is it, or is it a big con? Is it a big con game? I mean, what, you know, what do we believe? And are we willing to act on it? Are we willing to make it real? Um, why is it so often left to the historically oppressed, the nation's African-American citizens to hold America to its promise to make that real? When are we all going to strive to make that real? Do we believe it? I don't want to. I don't want to see the, all these flags flying if you don't believe it. And you know, frankly, I'm 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 skeptical at this point. You got to show me because I'm not entirely sure that we believe it, or that a majority of us believe it. Wow, um, you know, I was I, one thing I completely forgot to bring was that the. The movement against the stadium in the bottom. You had mentioned Shaco Bottom initially, and if you remember, there was a, a one of the piercing calls against this a few years ago in the district where uh, you know, it's a, it's a, many African American slaves were buried. You had the site of the Goodwin Slave Jail. Uh, it's still an area of dereliction. I remember that the actress uh, Nupita Liongo, who won an Oscar for Twelve Years a Slave. Um, came out kind of with some agency speaking on behalf of the family of Solomon Northup and said pretty much, no, they would not want this built here. Of course not. And that pretty much shut down the conversation. You see that there was a foment. City Hall had arranged with other people and private sector people, and that killed it. And I wonder if that was a perverse moment of unity. I don't know if you're seeing anything like that happen nationally now. You certainly don't hear the calls for coalition building like you used to back in the day. So divided. I mean, how do you build coalitions? We're just such a nation divided right now. But, um, you know, you're talking about elections. You've got to, whoever wins will be the candidate who can find that common cause. Um, there's so much noise, you know, and, and, and that noise, to my thinking, is intentional. It's, it's meant to disrupt coalition building because true coalition building gives power to the people. And there are forces in this country who don't want the people to have power. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And one of the things I notice is even if you do see a groundswell, even if, say, Elizabeth Warren pulls off a coup uh, or Bernie Sanders pulls off a coup, you do have that specter of the midterm election coming in. And then you saw what happened to Obama in 2010 and and bringing in a group to kind of, it, it's it's kind of inefficient if it's if it's this tug of war, this back and forth and back and forth, and it's all about kneecapping and hampering the other side, then it's all tactical. But but what are we, what are we fighting? What are the fights over? 
again, who are we? I mean, I used to hear a lot of noise about fiscal conservatism till I didn't. Hmm. I used to hear a lot of noise about the Constitution till I didn't. What's real? What do people really believe in? And how do we engage that in our politics? I don't, I don't even know, I mean, what would be, okay, say if Elizabeth Warren won and there was like this big turnover in, in the House in, 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 in 20, in the next ele- 2020 yeah. as a result. What would be the impetus for that? You know, I, I don't even know anymore. What, what, <laughs> what are the fights over? I mean, everyone professes to want health care, right? Then what are we fighting over? You know, I don't, I don't even know what the fights are about anymore on the real. I mean, there's just so much noise. I'll leave us with a hopeful thought, if you will. All right. Um, I, I like hope. Tell me. Um, you would think that with these polling numbers that there would be an opening for a national unity type candidate, a conciliatory person. And maybe it's just the storybook me, Civics 101, seventh grade saying that. The country's in a bad mood. Who was, in, who was more conciliatory than Barack Obama? I mean, <laughs> and he was treated like he was hate. He was like Lucifer. I mean, it, it just, it, that, I don't know if that, none of it makes sense anymore. You know, you had no drama Obama and there's still people, you know, that I read, I read letters to the editor and who think he was the embodiment of, 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 of corruption and evil. And it, it's, we live in a post-factual America. I don't know mm. how to, how to, you know, what's my hope? My hope is the young people. Uh, I, I see movements. Um, all movements are incremental. There's always pushback. But the young people seem to have different mindsets about a lot of things. And I'll quote a great philosopher who's since passed away by saying, teach them well and let them lead the way. Mm-hmm. Michael Paul Williams, I can't thank you enough. Richmond Times Dispatch columnist Michael Paul Williams here in studio with us. Uh, sir, you can be followed at? RTD MPW. Thank you so much. You are always welcome on this show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Enjoy this broadcast on NPR member station VPM News on the NPR One app and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Another reminder for you, Full Disclosure Live presents Not a Surf at the National Sunday, November 10th. Hear the stories and hear the music. Tickets at vpm.org events. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Next week.